Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Sandra Mazzioni, a hematologist at the Toxic Cancer Institute. She's here today to talk to us about monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS. Welcome, Sandra. Thanks for having me. Give us a little bit of an idea. What do you, what do, you do here at the Cleveland Clinic? So I'm kind of split between seeing a variety of different um, benign or classical hematologic entities, and then I also see the full spectrum of plasma cell disorders. So from truly benign conditions like MGUS or monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance all the way through multiple myeloma amyloidosis. Okay. And so let's, um, you know, we have people that might be listening in with varying degrees of, of sort of backgrounds in MGUS and what that is. So let's start very simple. What is MGUS? That's a good question. So it's, as I said, it stands for monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. That's a big mouthful. When I explain it to patients who have no medical background, I basically tell them that there's this protein that was detected on a blood test that looks to be potentially of significance. And so we use these blood tests in order to look at basically a spectrum of proteins our body naturally produces. That particular test, it's called a protein electrophoresis. So what that does is it takes every protein that's in our bloodstream and it puts out a pattern. There's a normal pattern and then it compares normal to the individual patient. And sometimes there is what's called a spike. It's a physical abnormality within this picture, so to speak. And they can then identify what that abnormal protein is and give us a quantity and also identify what type it is. So these proteins are actually um, different antibodies or immune globulins to be more specific. So part of our um, normal immune system. They're produced by cells that are also part of our normal immune system um, by different types of B cells, B like boy. A normal B cell can produce this, or a mature form of B cell called a plasma cell can produce this. Now, our job as hematologists is to figure out, well, what does this mean? Is this, you know, a small quantity that can be watched and is truly something that is a benign condition, or is this something that is of clinical significance? And that's where things have shifted. It's, there's more association with clinical significance now than what we originally thought. So undetermined significance, but we're learning more about the significance. Correct. And so just give us a little perspective. So somebody comes in and says, I have this M protein and my doctor sent me to see you. We might be looking at a patient with MGUS, which you think is relatively benign. And then you can fill me in on, on, on what yeah. exactly that means. But what else could it be? What else What might they be worried about? Yeah, so this, this whole M protein. So M, we throw it around very casually. It basically means monoclonal. So to tell someone that they really have a clone you need to be able to detect that there is a clonal population, meaning that there's a B cell or plasma cell, so the mature B cell, that is making copies of itself, so to speak. So the way that we typically do this is we talk with the patient, we look at a timeline of events. So oftentimes these patients may come to us with a couple years of history of this M protein being watched. In other cases, it's brand new diagnosis. So now we need to figure out, okay, what type is this? What do we know about this so far? And there's different risk categories, even for MGUS. So 
if you have a IgG, so I'm going to use some weird Greek terms here now because everyone decided to use the Greek alphabet for all this. Basically, they break down the protein structure into heavy chains and light chains. So the heavy chains come in multiple different flavors, IgG, IgA, IgM, etc. And those are all based off the Greek alphabet. And then there's light chains that are kind of attached to the top of the structure of this antibody. And they come in two flavors. Again, the Greek alphabet comes in play, kappa and lambda. So the lowest risk are the people who are going to be IgG kappa. That's actually the most common. Those patients you can typically watch. You look at all their symptoms. You do a thorough physical exam on these patients. And typically, these are the patients who have what we call a 1% annual risk of them progressing to something that could be of clinical significance. Then you have other patients who could have a higher amount of M protein. So anything greater than 1.5 puts you in a slightly higher risk. Anything non-IgG puts you in a higher risk. And then those light chains, that cap and that lambda. If that ratio is shifted so it's abnormal in one direction or the other, that will be another risk factor. So the more these risk factors patients have, the more likely we're to talk about a deep dive into truly investigating if this is a clonal entity if it's clinically significant, or what is the risk of this progressing to something like multiple myeloma? And I'm guessing that most people, if their primary care physician, for instance, tells them they have an M protein and they get onto Google and they're going to come in and that first thing they're going to be worried about is, do I have multiple myeloma? Correct. Correct. So that that's part of our job too, is where do patients fall on that spectrum from MGUS to this in-between stage called smoldering? which again breaks apart to low risk, intermediate, and high risk, and then who truly has active disease and needs treatment. Now what we're learning though is that there's people who will fall into this pre-meeting criteria for active disease, active myeloma, that have other clinical entities that need treatment. And that's where I have kind of developed a specialty at the clinic. So, so maybe let's go ahead and just talk a little bit about that. What are some of those those factors we're looking at here? So the most common one is probably uh, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance. So you'll notice a pattern here. They name all these things off monoclonal gammopathy and then whatever organ system of clinical significance. So there's monoclonal gammopathy of neurologic significance, dermatologic significance. I would argue there's one of skeletal significance. Those are the main ones that we have really truly defined. There's probably even one of endocrine significance, but that's in the works brewing as far as what really is that entity and what, how do we test for it? How do we monitor it? How do we look for it, et cetera? And so those essentially would be someone that happens to have an M protein and then they have a dysfunction in a particular thing like bone or kidney, not full-blown, not full-blown, not myeloma. full-blown myeloma where they have multiple things. So, so these patients, uh, the easiest one to describe, let's um, pick like, monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance. So this is a relatively newer term. I would say in the last 20 years, this has really come to, you know, being well-defined. And there's more and more different subtypes of this entity being defined, with the most recent one being defined in 2017. All these different entities, these patients don't necessarily have to have, you know, an abnormal creatinine or an abnormal creatinine clearance. They can be dumping protein and have um, very high levels of protein in their urine. And what we need is we need to get a renal biopsy in these patients. So these patients will go a thorough myeloma style workup, including what we call advanced imaging. 
So not just a whole body x-ray, which is called a skeletal survey, but they'll also get either a CT, a PET scan, or an MRI in order to look for um, bony abnormalities. In myeloma, the most common bony abnormality is a lytic lesion, or it looks like a little hole. And then you have to do the blood work on these patients so you can identify what type or what flavor of monoclonal protein is present. Then you need to do the kidney biopsy. And the kidney biopsy is key here because based on the kidney biopsy, you're gonna see different patterns of immune deposition that will match the same uh, monoclonal protein that we're finding in oftentimes the bone marrow and the blood. And so that pattern alone without the kidney being damaged in some way or shape or form would not qualify as full multiple myeloma. But now we have this kidney damage that's happening from this small clone of abnormal B cells or plasma cells that's causing damage to the kidney. So that relationship is very important to establish. And I guess we, we commonly think about, you know, when we see all the new therapies that are, are rapidly coming out for multiple myeloma, are there similar developments that are being helpful for patients with these sort of indiv individual, like, MGUS something yes, yeah. organ so that's, dysfunction? That's, that's a bit of the frustrating point, is that these entities are so rare. The one I mentioned with renal dysfunction is probably the most common that we find. And I think here we find so much of it because we work so closely with our nephrologist here. So we have easy access to kidney biopsies. So we're finding a lot more of this than I think initially um, we thought was out in the wild. But the question about treatment. So a lot of this treatment is myeloma research focused. So based on what has worked traditionally to kill off a B cell or kill off a plasma cell tends to work with monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance or MGRS for short. Um, there's NCCN, National um, Conference of Cancer Network guidelines for this. There's guidelines within like the International Myeloma Society. And we often treat this as active myeloma. So same um, chemotherapy uh, protocols and often we even consider transplant in some of these cases too. So it's really monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, but once you have some element of an organ dysfunction, mm -hmm. even if it's not full-blown criteria for myeloma, we can still um, effectively treat patients. Correct. Let's take a step way back. Um, patients see you when someone has told them they have this abnormal protein, and you talked about the electrophoresis and things. So what are the sort of the, the, the patients? Like, again, if people are sort of listening in, they're like, hey, maybe I'm missing things. Who should be getting the testing to determine if they have a monoclonal gammopathy in the in the first place? Are, are we lagging behind and not diagnosing people that we really should and kind of being yeah, dismissive yeah. of, sem of so symptoms in labs? That's a good question. So the most comprehensive study was done by Dr. Kyle. Um, he's with Mayo Clinic. And so he did basically a population study there in Rochester, Minnesota. But the population in Rochester, Minnesota is not... Um, representative of like the population in say Cleveland or most large cities in the United States. So there's actually a project that um, is being developed here. It has funding and it is going to start actively enrolling soon. It's gonna go through our community outreach um, program and it's focused specifically on our African-American population because that population for some reason, we see more incidents of monoclonal gammopathy and full-blown myeloma in that population 
than other um, ethnic groups. So we're trying to get real deal numbers on what is the incidence of monoclonal gammopathy in African Americans? How should we screen them? What do you, how many of these patients are going to have clinically significant monoclonal gammopathy? That question is not answered. So yes, we have good data on um, mostly a Caucasian population, but not like a population that really reflects the United States. And I guess you mentioned screening, and there's not anything that's really defined at this point from a screening because of the rarity. Is that? Well, so the reason why a lot of people will get this test, so I actually did a project as a fellow looking at every single monoclonal workup that was done in the hospital over a period of 10 years. And the reasons varied all over the place. The things that were taught in medical school would be the crab features. So the elevated calcium, the renal dysfunction, the anemia and bone lesions or bone pain even. So the main reasons I was seeing uh, monoclonal workups being ordered had to do with patients with anemia, patients with an elevated protein or a protein gap. So that protein gap is taught to us as these blood tests that routinely are drawn all the time that can calculate a total protein in the blood and then albumin, which should be the predominant protein in our blood. And then if there's a gap, meaning a difference of over five between the total and the albumin, that seems to be a trigger point to order this as well. Um, unexplained kidney dysfunction is a big reason to order this and elevated calcium. Those seem to be the main reasons people order this test, but I'll tell you, the ones that are getting missed quite often is the basic anemia workup. So when it's not iron deficiency, it's not hemolysis, quite often in the primary care setting, we're not seeing the monoclonal workup and it's coming to us appropriately as a referral for anemia workup. And that's how we're catching it. Out in the region, I'm seeing a very similar pattern as well. So really more kind of unexplained anemia leading to this. Correct. Gotcha. I, I know that some, you know, I, I treat a couple of sort of aggressive benign tumors and this comes up as, a, as an issue occasionally. How do you deal with the psychosocial sort of aspects of someone being told they have something that's not right, it's not cancer, could become cancer? How, how do you incorporate that into your practice? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. So I've had many, many patients, they have actually more anxiety about monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance than they do about real deal myeloma, because when it's myeloma, you, it's, it's very clear cut. But now they describe this as like a ticking time bomb sitting in them. So I give them numbers, again, that are based mostly off of Dr. Kyle's research at Mayo, about what are the odds of this transforming or becoming an active problem. And in some cases, people who have you know lowest risk, it's 1% annually. If their numbers stay stable for five years, that's best case scenario. It's somewhere around, depending on the numbers you pull, like five to 8% over a 20 year period, it's gonna become a problem. So that's very reassuring. But now you have that five year waiting period of, oh God, what's gonna happen? And then you have these patients who are smoldering. So they're somewhere in that in-between state, meaning they have a larger clone. So we did a bone marrow on them and they have somewhere between 10 and 60% plasma cells. And the closer they're inching to 60%, you know, the closer these, you know, you can see the anxiety levels rising. And those are the patients that, you know, you know something's gonna happen. So I have to make sure that my own anxiety about how often to monitor this and make sure I catch it as soon as I can, is also relayed to the patient of, you know, we're gonna be watching this every three months as opposed to every six months. When we start to see that protein number rise, we will, you know, repeat some imaging, repeat some more blood work, potentially a repeat bone marrow in order to get this thing as soon as it progresses to active disease.
I, I must say just the name smoldering mm-hmm. is must be anxiety <laughs> provoking. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So so what what does that look like? You mentioned things about like repeating tests and things. What what would be considered normal? So normal for someone with, with MGUS. So let's let's get away from the, the lowest of low risk MGUS. So that's your IgG kappa patients. Let's say you have someone who has a different heavy chain and doesn't matter what the light chain is in this case. So it could be like an IgA kappa. That would be someone who I would screen thoroughly for making sure they don't have any unexplained skin rashes. I would gather, you know, urine studies on them. So I'd, I'd look back to see if they've been dumping protein in their urine in the past. If they have, I always do 24-hour urines over a spot urine in these patients and just make sure that I'm doing my due diligence. Most importantly is offering a bone marrow biopsy. So I know that bone marrow biopsies are very anxiety provoking for patients, but here at the clinic, we have easy access to getting bone marrows done. And I think that is the best way to know 100% for sure that A, it's clonal, and B, you have a dedicated number system now. So you have a percentage of clonal cells. You can get what's called a FISH study on these patients. So FISH helps determine also What's the risk of this progressing? Basically, you can look at the plasma cells themselves and the different chromosomal changes within these plasma cells. So we know certain things are high risk and certain things are less likely to progress quickly. And that way you have a better timeline for these patients so that both you and their anxiety is treated appropriately. There we go. You you talked about how oftentimes as a hematologist, people come in with sort of anemia, not knowing that they have MGUS. Who's the right patient to come in and see a hematologist? I mean, should everybody that has sort of this, these abnormal findings at least have a contact with the hematologist and, and, and specifically at, you know, academic centers that are maybe more invested in these things? Yeah, so that, that's also a very good question. When I first came here, we were bombarded with MGUS consults in our clinic as providers. And I looked at this and it was a major access problem because there was no filtration system between people who were newly diagnosed amyloid, newly diagnosed myeloma, and these patients who had these tiny, small monoclonal proteins. So we developed a number of APPs who now subspecialize. So APP is the um, like advanced practitioner. So the nurse practitioners, the physician assistants, and they're out in the region here, they're at main campus, but we meet every two weeks and we go over all of the cases they see so that we can have better access for all of these patients. Because yes, a patient who has a non-IgG monoclonal protein should be evaluated by someone with this specialty training. They present them and we make sure that we're not finding some sort of clinical significance. We come up with um, a recommendation about how often to be screening them going forward, how often to be seeing them, what testing to be getting next, et cetera, who to refer them to. So there's some patients have unexplained neuropathy and they really need to see someone from our neuromuscular team, get EMGs, those sort of things. So this has been really nice and it's it's been good for education too. Yeah. What are the biggest gaps? What What needs to be addressed? What are the biggest questions that need to be answered? So the bigger thing is no one really knows with smoldering myeloma patients, the high risk patients, it's very controversial about what to do with them. 
do you start treating them early to try to prevent the organ damage, to try to, to delay the progression to true myeloma, or is starting treatment early picking out the high-risk clone? Are we killing off the clone that's very treatment sensitive, and are we setting up a resistant clone for the future that's going to be really tough to tackle? No one really knows. That's That's a big gap in research, but it's one of those things that a lot of people are looking into. That's great. Well, um, we certainly appreciate you being with us here today and providing all this insight. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. To make a direct online referral to our Tosic Cancer Institute, complete our online cancer patient referral form by visiting clevelandclinic.org slash cancer patient referrals. You will receive confirmation once the appointment is scheduled. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our ConsultQD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon. Thank you.